the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson. As we head into Hour 3, it's uh, something I was talking about earlier. Thomas Sowell, the great Thomas Sowell, takes a, takes a break and a peek out from his tent of retirement to observe the following today. I shall quote a little bit at length. This is an election year, but the issues this year are not about Democrats and Republicans. The big issue is whether this nation has degenerated to a point of no return, a point where we risk destroying ourselves before our enemies can destroy us. If there is one moment that symbolized our degeneration, it was when an enraged mob gathered in front of the Supreme Court and a leader of the United States Senate shouted threats against the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, saying, you won't know what hit you. There have always been irresponsible demagogues, but there was once a time when anyone who shouted threats to a Supreme Court justice would see the end of his own political career and could not show his face in decent society again. You either believe in laws or you believe in mob rule. It doesn't matter whether you agree with the law or agree with the mob on some particular issue. If threats of violence against judges, publishing, or a judge's children go to school— is the way to settle issues, then there is no point at all in having elections or laws in the first place. There's also not much point in expecting to have freedom. Threats and violence were the way the Nazis came to power in Germany. Freedom, it turns out, is not free. If you can't be bothered to vote against stormtrooper tactics, regardless of who engages in them or whatever the issue, then you can forfeit your freedom. Worse yet, you can forfeit the freedom of generations not yet born. Some people seem to think that the Supreme Court has banned abortions. It has done nothing of the sort. The Supreme Court has, in fact, done something very different, something long overdue and potentially historic. It has said that their own court had no business making policy decisions, which nothing in the Constitution gave them the authority to make in the first place. Get out a copy of the Constitution. See if you can find anything in there that says the federal government is authorized to make laws about abortion. Check out the Tenth Amendment, which says that the federal government is limited to the specific powers it was granted, with all other powers going to the states or to the people. Why do we elect legislatures, legislators to do what the voters want done if unelected judges are going to make up the laws on their own instead of applying the laws that elected officials passed? It's part of a very long struggle that has been going on for more than 100 years. Back in the early 20th century, progressives like President Woodrow Wilson decided that the Constitution put too many limits on the powers they wanted to use. Claiming that it was nearly impossible to amend the Constitution, progressives advocated that judges interpret the constitutional limits out of the way. This was just the first in a long series of sophistries. In reality, the Constitution was amended four times in eight years from 1913 to 1920 during the heyday of the progressive era. When the people wanted the Constitution amended, it was amended. When the elites wanted the Constitution amendment, but the people did not, that is supposedly called democracy. 
Another great sophistry was using the federal government's authority to regulate interstate commerce to call all sorts of other things interstate commerce. States had a right to ban carrying a gun near a school, for example, but a federal law ban near a school was not interstate commerce, even though most states already banned them. The federal government just had no authority there, nor did the Constitution give the federal government the right to make laws about abortion one way or the other. What both state and federal laws do have the right to stop is threats against judges and their families. This should not be a partisan issue. The Republican governor of Virginia is providing protection to Supreme Court justices who love in his, live in his state. But the Republican governor of Maryland seems to think that harassing judges and their families is no big deal. Voters need to find out who is for or against mob rule, whether they are Democrats or Republicans. We are not going to be a free or decent society otherwise. Mob rule. There's a word for that. Anarchy. We discussed it a bunch yesterday. It comes after the discount and demolition of justice. That very interesting word justice that has been the consuming thought of every important political philosopher from Plato to James Madison, who put it in the 51st Federalist that the absence of justice will yield, quote, to a society under the forms of which the stronger faction can readily unite and oppress the weaker. Anarchy may as truly be said to reign as in a state of nature, where the weaker individual is not secured against the violence of the stronger, close quote. There was something that was supposed to put between the strong beast and the weak victim to protect the latter from law. It's why we left the state of nature. If not law, at least justice. But those bulwarks of civilization were tossed out for partisan purposes and in the name of a Marxist movement, most specifically here in 2020. They were discounted when massive riots took place throughout the country, killing nearly 30 people and causing billions of dollars worth of damage. Police headquarters were taken over. Federal court buildings were firebombed. Stores were torched. And the Democrats whipped up the frenzy either by redefining and dismissing it all as peaceful or by raising money to bail out the rioters or by saying, as our Speaker of the House did about one particular riot in Baltimore, quote, people will do what people do, close quote. Too bad that Baltimore riot didn't take place on January 6th. Maybe an inquiry would have been cobbled together by the Speaker to investigate it. But when power can be taken and subsumed with an appeasing of brutality and plunder, and that brutality and plunder is done under the banner of an organization whose founders were avowed Marxists, you cannot tell me we live in a normal country in normal times, or that it is just fine and okay for the blithe attitude we have about it all. We've gone from the notion of law and order being a dog whistle to racists, to anarchy being our new operating mode of something that pretends to be, but in reality is just a burlesque of constitutionalism and leadership in something once known as a constitutional republic. Now, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing to think about 
just some of the stories we mentioned a few moments ago. Take the easy one. Take the most recent exemplar. The fact that people think is a fact that the Supreme Court outlawed abortion. What is that resultant of? How do people think such a thing? How can they think such a thing? Two things. People have been whipped up and frenzied to always believe the worst in this country, always to believe the most extreme, always to believe that we're on the precipice and edge of destruction, whatever the sacred cow of public policy may be, whether it's public health or, in this case, abortion rights. And the news media aids and abets it all along the way because, A, they thrive on frenzy, and, B, they thrive on ideology and the perpetuation of that ideology. What was the notion of describing all these riots as peaceful, almost as if it were Baghdad Bob on MSNBC where reporters like Ali Velshi are standing in front of a burning city saying this is a mostly peaceful protest? Is it because they think we're dumb or is it because they want us to be dumb, numb and dumb? I submit it's the latter. And that's also the opposite of what was required to maintain the constitutional republic our founders bequeathed to us. They knew it required illiterate citizenry, but beyond illiterate citizenry, they knew it required Freedom of press, as it was seen in its guise, in freedom of speech, and, of course, freedom to peaceably assemble and protest the government for redresses of grievances. There was a reason they wanted to secure those individual rights of freedom and the freedom of the press. It wasn't so that would we, that we would be dumber. It was so that we would be smarter. You can't have self-government if the governed are dumb. We conservatives know that. Guess what? So too do the leftist progressives. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome back also to our show, Professor Charles Lipson. Not the same last name, but sounds like it. L-I-P-S-O-N is how the good professor spells his name. He is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. His columns appear at Real Clear Politics, Spectator World, The Wall Street Journal, and others. You can uh, access all his work at his own website, charleslipson.com, L-I-P-S-O-N. Professor, welcome back, and thanks for being with us again. It's my pleasure. I try to be on uh, your show because our names sound funny. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we must confuse the enemy all the time, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I, I've got some bills that have been arriving. I was going to say I have some hate okay. mail I can say. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Professor, thanks for being with us. I mentioned um, you appear in Real Clear Politics, and you did um, this morning with a really interesting piece, The Decline and Fall of Newspapers. We could probably talk about news more broadly as well. But I wanted to talk to you about it and have an extended conversation with you about it because it's one of the smartest and, um, shall I say, detailed pieces on the decline that a lot of us talk about but not much in depth. So I'm glad you did, and I'm glad you're here. So. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
Thank you. That. My go, pleasure. Go ahead. I have a few nits to pick with you along the way. I, I, I imagine you can guess where I'm going on those. But go ahead and lay out your general thesis. Take as much time as you like. Well, thank you. Uh, everybody knows that um, that uh, newspaper circulation has declined. But even I was uh, surprised by how drastic the decline was. There is now only one newspaper in our country with a circulation of over one million. Um, this is a country of over 330 million people. Uh, there are only nine that have more than 100,000 subscribers. And um, the other numbers all reinforce that. Uh, something like a quarter of all newspapers have disappeared in the last 15 years. Total circulation is well down and all the rest. And then people will rightly say, uh, ask a question, and uh, which is, what's driving this and isn't it all going online? And that's, of course, the main answer. Yes, of course, it's going online. Um, and uh, one quick illustration is that the Washington Post, which has 150,000 print subscribers, I was really shocked at how small it was. Yeah, that is, over- that's inter- That's like Arizona Republic numbers, just a little higher than the Arizona Republic in one, we're a one-state paper. That's I thought shocking. we wouldn't get your numbers counted for another two nights. Well, yeah, we have that, too, going on. <laughs> you are a professor uh, of political but, science. Okay, go on. <laughs> okay, but go. anyway, uh, the Washington Post, which has the small number of print subscribers, has over 3 million uh, subscribers uh, online. Now, there's good news in that, which, may, you know, if you're in Phoenix or Tulsa or Tucson or whatever it might be, you now have access to the New York Times, uh, to the Washington Post, and so forth, um, in real time, just as, just as somebody in Washington or New York does. The bad news is, uh, is I think, twofold. One has to do with local papers. And many local papers, once, you know, proud, good papers, Chicago Tribune, for example, are now mostly just republishing old AP news stories. Well, I can get that online already. That's not adding anything. The the other thing uh, is that online publications have destroyed the old business model that made newspapers profitable. They made some money from subscribers, but they made most of their money from advertising. And that was because if you wanted to uh, reach the whole Phoenix market, you had to advertise where? Yep, exactly right. Arizona Republic or the Phoenix Gazette, it's nighttime version. But yeah, that's right. Right, right. and the nighttime versions versions tended to disappear. But uh, in in Chicago, you had to do the Tribune and and in Memphis, the commercial appeal and, and so forth. Those days are gone, uh, and they're gone because now you can get targeted advertising online, and because if you want to get news, you have hundreds of choices. So the monopoly uh, pricing power for ads that uh, that newspapers used to have is completely evaporated. They also had a huge stream from classified advertisements, and of course Craigslist followed by many other things, uh, 
completely uh, devastated that. So the problem then is uh, that if you're a local newspaper, what the only way you can survive is by giving unique local content. Otherwise, why not just subscribe to to the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or whatever you you prefer? I then draw a big political implication from this, and that is everybody, let's go to Marketing 101. Okay. You try to get people who already kind of agree with you and get more of them to uh, subscribe to your channel or your podcast or whatever it is. If you're, you don't try to get people from the other side. So MSNBC is going to try to get more progressives to listen to them. They're not going to try to convince Trump voters to listen to them. Uh, But if everybody is trying to appeal to their own niche market, which they're going to do in a very big uh, space where news is broadcast, uh, where you can get your news from dozens and maybe hundreds of different sources, you're going to go to the ones that sort of have your viewpoint and appeal to you and are designed to appeal to you. And what that means is that we're going to be that we're living in more and more echo chambers, or to use a different metaphor, news silos, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. this silo is really separated from that silo. That deepens the division in an already divided country. Professor, you laid out a, a fantastic set of circumstances that have yielded to the point where we are right now with the silos. Uh, with the segregated news centers, uh, and I mean segregated by ideology, and right. the uh, also at the same time an interesting irony of all this with the decline of newspapers and probably the decline of viewership of the nightly news as well. I think we could add that in there somehow. Um, it's an interesting That's irony. Right. And in fact, yeah. it, it, there's not only a decline, but let me add one other thing. Sure. There's been a huge decline in trust. In yeah, all yeah, I want to pick up on that. I have to hit a commercial break, but let me pick up on that because that you saw where I was going. Because it's 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 an interesting thing we're at. The irony is we have less newspapers, less eyeballs on the networks, and in some respects, arguably a yet more informed citizenry. And and I bet we could argue that one out as well on a few different levels. So let's let's get to it all. After this break, I am Seth Liebson. He is Professor Charles Lipson, L-I-P-S-O-N. And, of course, you can uh, go straight to his website for all his columns, charleslipson.com. Great thinker. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago is our guest. We're talking about his piece up at Real Clear Politics today, The Decline and Fall of newspapers. Professor, right before the break, we were we were addressing a couple of things, the siloing of the news, the lack of trust, which the polls pretty much are in agreement on uh, in in both newspapers and news uh, cable and network news television. And yet I'm postulating in a sense um, that we are at the same time that all of this has been taking place, in some respects, a more informed citizenry because of the advent, obviously, of technology and access to it. Uh, But I also wonder 
if the other side of that coin is a more informed citizenry, but more narrowly informed, and also perhaps more subject in some respects, not only to better access to news, but perhaps more subject to conspiracy, too. Well, that's a, those are all interesting points. Just to uh, fill in a little data, um, um, po- uh, neutral surveys like Gallup have asked Americans, do you have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers or very little and so forth? Only 16% of Americans say they have a great deal or a a lot of confidence in newspapers. Only 11%, one out of eight, say that they have uh, that much confidence in TV news. So that's a very bad situation, and I must say the newspapers have brought it on, uh, in part because they are now, so many of them are now so ideological that they can't separate their hard news coverage from their uh, editorial opinion. The best uh, newspaper at that is the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has a very conservative um, uh, op-eds and editorial position and so forth, although they often have a lot of you know, people who dispute them and they allow them to print there. But their news coverage is completely distinct from that. That's just not true at the New York Times or the Washington Post, and we're all ill-served by that. Uh, They bury important things very deep down. And now we have social media that that have played very big and important roles in distributing news. And in the case of uh, the last election, uh, they just buried a legitimate story reported and sourced well by the fourth largest newspaper in the country, the New York Post, the stories about Hunter Biden and his laptop. And we were fed disinformation about that by uh, former intelligence officials and by current FBI officials. And and it was aided and abetted. Wouldn't you say, Professor, that was all aided and abetted by the major other organizations that kind of piled on CNN and others? Yeah, okay. Exactly. So I'm saying the the media has lost the public's trust for good reason. Now, um, you're asking about whether the public is better informed about uh, public issues. Yeah, and it goes both ways, because clearly in that case they were not. Clearly. Right. Uh, But in general, are they better informed than they were in the Eisenhower era or the LBJ era or uh, or uh, during Bill Clinton's era, which was the last era really before the Internet? I, I don't know, but I can tell you and I haven't seen any good data on that, but I can tell you that there's a. There's a certain presentism, if I can call yeah, it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to ask uh, just average person on the street what years the Civil War was, you wouldn't get very many right answers. And um, and Jay Leno used to go out on the street and yep. ask these questions. Of course, all we saw were the answers that were kind of funny. We didn't see the answers that were correct and, and not amusing. But... I notice it with students, um, uh, today's students compared to a previous generation, there's just less historical knowledge and less appreciation 
uh, of kind of large arcs of history. Let me let me pause you right there because yeah that that's that's the huge elephant in the room here. As I go to a break, this was a short segment. We'll have a longer one coming back. Let me postulate this for you, and we'll talk about it when we come back. We might be, as I'm thinking through and listening to you, Professor, we might be better informed on a day to day basis, but we're not calmer and we're not more mature in our ability to handle news, uh, and perhaps we're not as able to distill it either. Because of the modern mode of news delivery, which is frenzy, which is um, panic, which is built on sirens and alarms or alarms and excursions, if you'll allow me a little Shakespeare for a moment. We're, We're pushed into a new kind of news gathering and news consumption, which makes us perhaps less able to assimilate it as a mature democratic people. Let me run that by you when we come back. I'm Seth Libson. He's Professor Charles Libson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you are looking for a unique investment opportunity, a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y Refi. What they are offering is a fixed no load interest rate up to ten and a quarter percent return for investors, all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm. It's run by really great people, investors who do well by doing well for others. And you can to check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Professor Charles Lipson, L-I-P-S-O-N, from the University of Chicago is our guest. We're talking about his piece at Real Clear Politics today, The Decline and Fall of Newspapers. I, I won't repeat my whole pitch uh, that I made prior to the break, Professor, but I think I think you your 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 perhaps response will will help uh, remind what it was. It had to do with are we better able to assimilate news now, even though there's so much more of it or at least more access to it. To which I would say no, uh, and that right. that that is an additional problem. But I would also say it's it's the mainstream media, if I can use that phrases, fault. Uh, I'll pick up on that after after you uh, you take on my 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 postulate. I think all of our elite institutions, uh, and I'm using the term broadly, uh, have become very uh, woke and very tendentious in their viewpoint. And But uh, you see it on the conservative side, too. You see a kind of anger and even contempt for the other side. Uh, and so we kind of live in an age not only of clickbait news, but of of, uh, news sources, TV and uh, podcasts and everything else, that are are designed to sort of build up your rage and anger. Um, It's a a obvious way to get people to come out uh, and uh, motivate them to sign up and vote for you or register to vote and so forth. There was huge uh, um, influx of female voters who registered to vote after the Dobbs decision on abortion came out in Kansas, and it had a big effect in the last election. So it's an effective thing, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't be angry at whatever they're angry at. What I'm saying is that our public sphere is now kind of suffused with it, 
and that can't be. And and, uh, and would you say spoiled? Would you say spoiled too? Because it's led to this thing, hasn't it? Where it probably makes your profession teaching almost as impossible as a uh, as a casual conversation at a cocktail party, where two people are coming to a conversation about an event or moment with two totally different narratives and sets of facts and understandings. We're not operating from the same. We don't have a common language about our news and media and information or even history anymore. That's what it's resulted in, hasn't it? I think that's right. But I don't think there's anything wrong. And in fact, I think there's something desirable about uh, running into people at the park or at a party. I'm about to take my dog out to the dog park. And the people I'll meet there will undoubtedly have very different views from me. I mean, I live in a uh, in Chicago in a in a university neighborhood and so forth. I'm an I'm an outlier, but I like the fact that they have different views. What I don't like is if they refuse to talk to me, or if people like me would refuse to talk to them, or if they don't engage each other. But what if they and have different term- facts? What if they don't know where you're coming from and you and and they're simply uninformed? Take the Hunter Biden story, for example, if you want. Uh, talking to someone on your park stroll in November of 2020, I could see them saying, oh, no, that's Russian disinformation. You shouldn't have to pay attention. I've actually had that experience <laughs> okay. not with Hunter Biden. Yeah. Have you had it? Well, I've had variants of this, uh, uh, tons of variants of yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you say, well, and then, of course, they they say, well, I don't believe that right, or something right, like right, that. Right, 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 exactly. All yeah. You can, yeah. And, and all you can – I mean, that I have a little bit of an advantage in that uh, when I when I write things, I can put links in yes, as I have sure. it in the articles that, that uh, are at my website that you cited. So you can go if you, if you want to find out uh, about the decline in newspaper circulation or the decline in trust or something. You just click on the link that I had there uh, if you didn't already – know it but uh but i think what's happened we we're ill served by uh, this sense that we have of rage and contempt for each other and one of the uh ways in which it's expressed is the suppression of free speech on campus and which is now spread everywhere where if i'm and the measure of whether we should stop your speech is it somehow hurts my feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, the, if you look at our legal system in a broad sense, and this is a, uh, this is a problem uh, with suppressing free speech, our legal system is based on the, it, based on the British system and our system, uh, based on the idea that you get at the truth by letting each side have its best shot and, and put out its evidence and cross-examine the other side. And it's that contesting set of views that uh, allow a neutral observer sitting on the side to best understand what's going on and to get at the truth. Well, if, you, if everybody at Berkeley has the same view, if all of your uh, fellow students have the same view, if all your professors have the same view, you're not getting any range uh, of opinions. That's one problem. And secondly, if you were to speak out against uh, any particular view, whatever it might be on abortion, uh, whether we should have more private schools, you know, uh, money should follow the students, whatever the issue might be, and nobody... Uh, in your uh, 
no teachers, no fellow students uh, want to hear that, and you're shut down, they don't have a chance to think through, and you don't have a chance to hear the competing views. And it does lead to bad public policy outcomes. I don't want people to think this is an interesting Ivy League or, or Ivory Tower discussion. I mean, uh, outcomes can change. The outcomes of the, the, this problem can change an election. It can change the response to a pandemic. It can lead to war. Groupthink is what Irving Janus called it once upon a right. time, right? That is exactly right. Let me give you an example of that uh, that's related directly to Arizona. There's a... Arizona has been one of the leaders in move in uh, money following the child in education. Right. right. Okay. Well, uh, and I uh, am uh, quite in favor of that, and I'm in, in favor of it because in almost everywhere you see competition, you see better services. The post office is not as good as U A uh, UPS or FedEx and so forth, and for a long time they. Uh, post office had no competition at all. Wherever you have no competition, you have a kind of lethargy, and why not, right? Right. Um, uh, McDonald's has huge amount of competition. If you want to buy a hamburger and don't want to get out of your car to do it, you've got a lot of options. They've got to be good at what they do. Okay. Now, so it's not that an individual school A or B is going to be better. It's going to be that there's more competition, and that's going to lead all schools to be better. But here's the thing that if you're in a new silo, you're going to miss, okay? If you're in a silo that just says, we need more uh, of this kind of money for uh, students, uh, uh, follow the students, so, um, and then the other side says, no, it's all about public schools. Well, you're going to miss uh, the fact that we need to figure out how much money needs to go to each student with disabilities and how you measure a disability right. Right. so that my child who has uh, some kind of a disability um, is not faking it in order to get a $25,000 uh, remuneration, right. whereas your child doesn't get it. But the other thing is we... we would be denied a really good debate about how much money each child should receive. And and the reason that's important is let's say that we we set the amount at four thousand dollars. Okay? Yeah. Uh that's not enough to for a poor family to send their child to school on that amount, right? Yep. But it is enough for you a middle-class person who is already sending your uh, child to a private school or thinking about it and maybe just a little short of the tuition money, yep. that's enough for you. Yep. So if you if you put $4,000 down, you would actually be subsidizing the middle and upper middle class, right. kind of like PBS is a subsidy to right. those people. Right. Okay? Right. If you give enough money, then you not only allow poor people uh, to uh, access the system, you encourage new schools to crop up uh, to serve that market. Well, that kind of a discussion tends not to, to 
to occur if everybody's already on oh, the yeah, same Oh, yeah, no, side. It's, it's but one of the major issues that uh, we aren't, yes, this is, a, Professor, I could do an hour with you and will next time. I mean, this is, this is I, I have so many more questions to you, but alas, we've, we've hit my, my time limit. So I, I look forward to calling upon you again soon. I'd love to pick up on this later. I love this conversation. Me too. Thank you. Come back, Seth. Thank you, Professor Charles Lipson. You can get his articles at charleslipson.com, L-I-P-S-O-N. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was on to this uh, quite some time ago. Everyone likes to quote him on uh, how important uh, newspapers are, and he has said some things that were obviously uh, supportive of newspapers. They were, of course, newspapers in a different time. But he also said this, quote, Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. The man who never looks into a newspaper is better informed than he who reads them, inasmuch as he who knows nothing is nearer to truth than he whose mind is filled with falsehoods and errors, close quote. That's something to think about, isn't it? God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I am Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.